0: Radio. We are back with another episode with a very special, important East Village person to me and a lot of the previous guests on the radio show. His name is Aldo Hernandez. Intra- you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. <laughs> so, uh, Aldo. <laughs> <Introduce>. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, okay. Chichi de la concha. My name is Aldo
0: Hernandez and I'm East Village. East Village. Fabulous. And Aldo, uh, I came to meet you because you owned a record shop that was the first record shop, I think, that I ever shopped at. I don't even know if it was because of the location or because the music was amazing, but when I moved here, I lived on 18th Street between 1st and 2nd. This is 2002, and I came upon the shop at the 14th Street location, right next to those wig stores. That's what I think about. Royal wigs. We had that big hippie sign, Throb, and uh, good window
1: displays. Was that the first the first location for Throb? Yeah, it was the first and longest. It was like 8.8 years, and then we moved to Orchard Street for the last eight months there
0: when MP3s took over. Yeah, I remember the closing of the 14th Street. I think you were there. I you know, I was always shy to talk to the record store person, record store owner, but I remember the first time I had a conversation with you that I remember is going into the closing sale, and uh, and I, I bought a Bell and Sebastian Tiger Milk record, the, the reprint of it, which I still have probably, and I said, What are you going to do with all these records? And being you said, uh, You know, try to sell them. And if not, we're going to make ashtrays out of them. They're holding my bed up right now. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us the story of Throb. Oh, oh, sorry. I should have said that that song that I played, the first song, was a Felix the House Cat extended mix that I just came upon. But also, that album, um, Kitten in the Glitz with Miss Kitten, probably came out in 2002. And this was the electroclash era. And I have, I'm sure I got that vinyl at your shop also. And that just reminds me of that moment when i moved to new york larry t was djing in brooklyn he had lux and miss kitten was
1: all that chicks on speed la tigre peaches
0: we're all up behind all that electro punk sound yeah i mean now uh nine years later obviously that's not the most old school new york club sound in the world but for me that's a bit, you know, going back into my history and that's why I started that. But I'd love to hear more about how Throb came about and if you want to play a song after that that uh, sort of reminds you of that era or Throb or... Oh,
1: yeah, definitely. I do want to say, though, when you first came to Throb, you left a CD there called Rump Shaker.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I used to make these. I, so I would started making... That That wasn't the first time, but I did make, like, a boot. That was probably my first DJ mix that I actually made a mixtape out of. I actually
1: crypted it and a couple of the mixes on, and when I was DJing, you had some Missy Elliott and a couple other mashup mixed-up things in there, and I used it a few times for some gigs.
0: <laughs> I love that, because at the, at the second location, when you were on the Lower East Side, you had the mixtape CDs of A Touch of Class, and they were kind of like white label, yeah. underground, and, and I... Those were really good. I know there were at least nine. I still
1: have four of them, and they would basically put from 30 to 50 tracks together, do it like a two, three-minute parts of current electro dance uh italo synth pop all that mixed with some well mixing the decades really old and new
0: and they threw some great loft parties down on crosby street too i never went to the loft parties i went to one of their christmas parties and then i think i was talking about this with sammy joe because the scissor sisters had their first single that i played on that last show on a touch of class and when i was living in philadelphia before i came to new york everything that was on A Touch of Class that was coming out, and this is just as digital music was coming about in Napster, I was hearing it on programs like Napster and Audio Galaxy, and it really uh, influenced me to become a DJ. Speaking of
1: that, that, I, I remember the first Sister Sisters demo that I heard and it had this great track that I still play. It's called Kansas City Clone.
0: Yeah, go ahead, play it, first track. King Radio, that was a Sister Sister demo that uh, you had gotten in the store. They came in?
1: Yeah, well somebody left it in the store. I don't know if it was them. I just remember finding it later on after the store had closed and listening to it and a couple of, the other two songs were on their first re- early releases but this particular track I love and I hadn't heard it and I started playing it out a few years back and I still do sometimes but
0: the part about the Daisy Dukes is really good. What are the other perks to being a record store owner? I think that's everybody's fantasy, uh, and as you see in Hollywood movies all the time, it's projected on the screen. This is everyone's fantasy to own a record store. What were the perks? And then you could tell us about the drawbacks later on. Well, the main perk is that you
1: get your music when you want it, which is first, and or when it's, you know, available. So you get to to listen and pick and choose what you like instead of standing in a line waiting to be served by some ornery clerk somewhere. That was back in the day when people actually went to record shops. And back in the early 90s, um, Aberaxis from Fierce William Diva and Scott Richmond, and Jonathan Kadish and me opened a store called Septopia on Lafayette Street where Liquid Sky was located. And then Liquid Sky was this clothing design store. Uh, in fact, Chloe Sevigny worked there at the time.
0: That's how I know of Liquid Sky because she always talks about it and I think it was big... Big in the big in the rave scene with rave clothes, yeah. uh, club clothes. Yeah, a lot of
1: a lot of the rave kids were there. All the different scenes would gather there, whether it was Demetria Delight or different people, and you didn't have to necessarily be a name to hang out there. So a lot of people just hung out. There, the skater kids that you ended up seeing in that movie, kids, and it was just a really friendly place. And uh, so we had this combination clothing hangout, record shop for a while there with Carlos Slinger, who was the owner of, of uh, Liquid Sky, and. Out of that,
0: um... Your shop was Inside Liquid Sky as the record?
1: Subtopia was, which was the first shop. I had this idea, uh... And I was already friends with Jeffrey, of Frearsling Diva, Jeffrey's Aberaxis, of course. And we were... I was in this, uh, record pool called Rock Pool. And so I told Jonathan and Scott the idea, and they loved it, so we all got together, and they were like, you know, we... I managed it. We were all part owners, whatever. And we just started, uh bringing in the records from the distributors ourselves and bringing in what we wanted, you know, whether it was house or techno or drum and bass, uh ambient, everything. And then we had turntables there, which was the first time that ever happened in New York City. So you I brought turntables from home, another friend of mine Patrick Butts brought his turntable and we just made it happen. I remember the first time we got the first Portishead record and we, we made a bin called trip hop. And everybody laughed, you know. (laughs) They didn't laugh six months later, though, but (laughs) our Camelco Brothers was in that bin, too. And so that was that era, you know, 92, 93, 94. And then in January of 95, uh, after I came back from uh, DJing in Germany, I opened Throb. Uh, 94 I left and did three weeks in, in Berlin and Cologne. And the scene was really great then, I know as it is now, but... Um, even then I knew that this was the place, it was like, if I ever have to go, you know, leave New York, this is where I want to be. I ended up coming back after three weeks, and then shortly thereafter, in January of 95, I opened Throb on my own. And so I could really focus on all the sounds that I was interested in pushing, because there was so much room then. There were like 15 little shops, and we each had our niche, and there was plenty of room for everybody to like focus on their thing, whether it was 8 Ball Records or Rebel Rebel. Or you know Subtopia. Then uh, those uh, the other two. Uh, Aberaxis went back to Holland, and Jonathan and Scott opened Satellite Records, okay. and I, I and I opened Throb when I came back uh, from Germany, and it was great. Uh, that
0: lasted about eight eight years and eight months. Did you see yourself as competing with Satellite, or was it your friends had opened it and they were going to do more house? I mean, for the non-record listeners record buying listeners. Throb was much more to me it was much more electro, poppy, uppy and satellite which I shopped in from time to time was a much more serious house record venue. It started
1: off because I wanted to have a shop where I could really uh, you know bring out the music that I liked and not be so concerned about the commercialism and the, the having to work with so many partners uh you know where you don't always have the independence of what you're bringing in. You know or, or focusing on, so you know we all got along great, so the competition was really healthy. It was more about you know if we're getting the records a day or before or after, I wasn't so concerned about whether we carried the same items and they weren't either i I don't think, so it was a friendly competition. I think that having a small store, I was really able to focus, and as long as the store made enough to operate and get good music. Uh, you know, two, three, four times a week, there were new records coming in, and that was the game, and that 's the best thing about having your own record shop is you know you get to listen and go through the titles and get them and set them aside and you don 't have to worry about some ornery clerk you know making you wait putting it at the bottom of a stack of records, which was the old school way where you picked the records off the wall, they would put it at the pile, and if they didn't like or think they didn't like what you picked out, they'd put it at the bottom of the pile, so you could stand
0: there for quite a while. Was there a dispute ever as to whether Thrab or Satellite got a particular record in sooner or later, not a dispute. But they were
1: a bigger operation than me and more commercially oriented. I think so. Uh, I think that they geared, you know, in bigger numbers as far as some things. I don't know about any disputes. I know that I could. I had a variety of smaller distributors, and to me, it was more about sharing and bringing out music and turning people out on things that I liked that I thought were special like we weren't afraid to get into tech house right away or progressive house or even trance when that was like a no-no word for the house people in New York uh whether it was psychedelic and then of course in the late 90s when the electro punk sound started coming around which was kind of a mix of neo romantic and you know 80s synth Italo sounds mixed with the new production and Zach at the shop said you know I know you know this music because I had been in bands in the early 80's in LA and been into that scene then so I said okay let's do it so we made a bin and I, you know we gave it some really funny name like that like neuromantic something and then when I came up with the word electropunk uh, and we started putting records in there you know that we liked like Chicks on Speed and that and then later on of course I, I know that Casey and Larry and then created the electro clash term for their thing, and that really took off. But, you know, it wasn't really about who came up with the name. It was more like, we liked this first sound. Like, hearing the first Fisher Spooner single emerge that John Selway had released on Serotonin was great. I mean, not only was it different for his label, he obviously, being really brilliant at s- types of music, you know, decided to press this record and just get it out there. And they were doing more like art gallery performance, you know, trips with music and sound. And, and Immediately I knew that the this, this song was really hot and I started playing it at Click and Drag, which was this cyber goth party that you know, I was doing with Rob Roth and Chee Chi and them. And so it was just really fresh to hear the, the different ideas mixed together, like the the melodic and and lyrical sounds from back in the day with the new production skills. So, you know, it and so it had every everything. It was almost like electro grunge, you know. Um and that really for me was inspiring. I could tell like, okay, this is really fucking fresh, you know.
0: Excuse me. I have one more question. We're going to go to a song, but uh, when you were saying that I was thinking something, I was going to ask you, and we're going to talk more about your DJ days before Throb, but you're saying that Throb sort of came to you as a way to push new music. I'm wondering if you were... Unsatisfied or less satisfied with the introduction of new music to people through the venues you were DJing at, and whether Throb sort of served as another way to do that or a different way to do that. You could think about that. We could go to a song, or or you want to answer well, that? I want
1: to answer it. You can place it anywhere. Uh, <laughs> I started DJing in 1990.
0: We're gonna wait. We we'll save the DJing until after this because I know this is gonna be a longer story. That's a
1: good. That's a good one. Yeah,
0: you want to hear? It. Sonic Groove was. My other go to, and Dan Physics, who worked there, did pull.
1: It was on Carmen Street at Caddy Corner from Vinyl Mania, which was where they m- made you wait to listen to your record if it wasn't Deep House or. <laughs> <laughs> Vinyl Mania, Jarel, yeah, he was great, but you definitely had to give him respect because, you know, he'd say, oh, bitch, that scary techno record has to wait a few minutes here. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, uh, um, I ended up there, and then when it moved to Sonic Groove, moved to Avenue B, it's like when you guys moved down to. Lower East Side they moved further east to yeah, the East Village later,
1: yeah. yeah that was later like in the early 2000s by that time it, times were hard for vinyl people and so a lot of uh, the shops were renewing their leases yeah, and they moved to Avenue B I moved to
0: Orchard Street yeah. oh the dark days for record shops anyway this song came about at that time I don't know if you remember it, but it's uh, Talk Talk versus Sofio
2: You footing around with my feelings Has been too hard on me Just listen to my voice Ain't got something nice To say to you now Ain't got something nice
0: The question was, did opening a record shop grow out of you being a DJ? And to be honest, I don't know that much about you being a DJ. I know, I used to work at Pause Magazine, which is an HIV news and treatment magazine. I know you were very involved in ACT UP, and I just read this big transcript you did for the... Uh, it was the ACT UP oral history project, and they interviewed me a few years
1: ago about that time period from the late 80s to early 90s when I was one of the people in ACT UP.
0: And Yeah, so if you Google... Aldo Hernandez and Act Up. You can download the transcript yourself. It's interesting, but in that you, you touched briefly on coming to Sound Factory and you know moments like that, yeah. Arena. Um, but tell me how you got started as a DJ and how that sort of connected yeah. to opening a record store.
1: Well, I always liked playing records at parties. I had been in bands in L.A. in the early 80s um, and uh, some, you know, goth new wave punk bands. And when I came to New York, I
0: what were you playing, or were you the singer?
1: A background. I was playing synthesizer, mooks, and that, and that, writing the music a lot. What was
0: your hairstyle?
1: Oh, it was definitely Roxy music. <laughs> 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 Even <laughs> Bowie r- meets Roxy music meets whatever, uh, you know. Um, but um, I, oh, uh, so I'd always been an avid record collector, you know, everything from Throbbing Gristle, Public Image, to The Cure, you know, all the, being boiled humanly. Basically, I had a wide
0: range of taste in music, but... What was the first album you ever bought? This is the question we ask a lot of guests here. If there's one that stands out of your mind, it doesn't have to be the first you bought, but do you remember begging a parent for Adonis Summer? I said mine was Swing Out Sister, mine was CD's, but uh, my first was Swing Out Sister.
1: That would have to be The Beatles.
0: <laughs> it was. Which Which album?
1: The first one. <laughs> I was like four. <laughs> I liked all that, I loved all the psychedelic 60s music, and still do, um, so I, I always loved music, and I ended up becoming the DJ for a benefit for ACT UP and WHAM, at a loft down on Warren Street, and at then I would draw on some underwear, and maybe a wig for fun, and take a cassette deck, and an old record player, and stand there, and just play all the songs we all liked, and if I if they had the record in the loft, I would play theirs too. But otherwise, I'd bring my own. You know, whether it was 808 State or or you know, I'm Every Woman or different things. I remember for that period. I think some of the the our gay brothers and sisters were more into the George Michael moment. But I remember we did this loft party, and 800 people showed up, and they gave me $300. So I ran over to JNR and bought myself a little Newmark mixer, <laughs> and decided that I wanted to throw some parties that I didn't have to worry about. This or that, and I could hear the music that I wanted to hear with my friends, and everyone could come. And so I became DJ Nobody's Pussy, and I was already an act up. And I cut out some little flyers, and uh, my friend Julie Tolentino had found the space and started the Click Club. And I, I ended up DJing, DJing there the first night by default because the DJ was late. Uh, I was on my way there with some slides, you know, and visuals, but. Meat opened in the same space three weeks later. We had already planned our opening to be a few weeks later. And they did Fridays, and we did Saturdays. And it, immediately, it was a success. This meat market was just this out-of-bounds area, and the doors were open, and people just partied in and out of on the street. Everyone paid $5.
0: What was the name of your party?
1: Meat. <laughs> and that started in August of 90, and that was because every sign on every door said meat. And we know we were looking for meat. Even vegetarians have to have their meat. So meat... It was great. We really I wanted to do the, like a place where everybody could hang out. I could play everything I liked whether it was deep house or Aphex Twin. Uh, I was really into the visuals thing, you know, I liked having friends that were artists come in and contribute. Um my friend David White, Ainer, and then so we mixed it all up, you know, with slides and visuals and and go-go dancers. I'd had everybody from skinny to to built dancers. The main idea though is the music was Whatever we wanted to offer, I wanted to offer, and that was before I started bringing in other DJs. And you could basically be yourself there instead of being part of a scene like the Roxy or some of the other more established clubs. It was basically, you know, a do it yourself.
0: Was it modeled on any other club? I mean, I know you said uh, that you play the songs you want. I mean, I think a lot of people just start DJing because they want to hear what's fun and what their friends like. And I certainly started DJing not knowing you or other DJs. I mean, I knew of DJs, but not very intimately. Was there anybody that you had looked up to or kind of like a club that you sort of formatted your night on? Yes. I already was doing the loft parties, but and I had some ideas, but it was
1: really solidified when I went to San Francisco for the AIDS conference in June of 90, and I went to a club, and their byline was dark, loud, sleazy, queer, and I lifted that byline and put it under me I don't remember, it was at 14th and Valencia. It was at a place called Ival, which is love backwards, right? But uh, that really solidified what I was already planning on doing instead of just doing the occasional loft parties and events with friends. I really liked the vibe. It was a little club, and they were playing everything from house to thrill-cult-cult, and there was a little dance floor in the back and black lights, and cr- just everybody was having a gale time. And so that really you know, was an influence, and uh, once, once... The space was, you know, in place. It was just a matter of, of you know, I was really into uh, making this happen. And so I didn't beat mix, even though I came from a musical background. And I would stand there, and a group of DJs would stand around me, caccawing, because obviously I didn't beat mix. And I would hold on to the table. If the song was good, the whole room, the floor would shake, so you had to hold on to the table, <laughs> because otherwise. And then so I had, yeah, I had my little CD player, which would fog up if it was too humid you know, if the party was good. And you had a little cassette deck and one turntable, and which was a duel, not a techniques yet.
0: Okay, we're going to pause and have you go into a song from that era now, but also I wanted to note that I was just reading that flyer on Facebook that you had posted, or someone had posted at Sound Factory, and you said that the owner or the manager had read you for bringing in a CD player. Is that after is at the yeah, same uh, time period? 92. That was in 92 for Gay Pride Weekend, and
1: and I I... Plugged in a CD player into the back of the the Yuri mixer, which was the old school mixer, and I was playing this Kraftwerk track. I guess it. Uh, First, I was doing some sort of like pre-mashup thing with Diamanda's voice and Kraftwerk. I, I set up the CD during the sound check so I could play this track, and then it, you know, it was time to play it, and uh, this this owner named phil he came up and he read me for phil he just yelled he he you know he said if if i blew any speakers i was gonna pay for them because junior and and frankie were the djs there then there i, I think it was during the tussle period but i know that frankie was playing the next night but junior was still you know quite involved there and it was basically he had started that club
0: blow a speaker from the cd levels or something
1: yeah something because they it was a whole new language to them putting you know i basically you know Took the RCA cables and put it into the back of the URI mixer because I knew how to do that, and just plugged it into the little C, little portable Panasonic CD player, you know, one of those little, and I just sat it there next to the. And he came in there and saw that and let me have it. I still got to, you know, to use it for the moment, but you know, first songs that I was playing at meet that was big that I loved is "Get It Off" by Underground Three. Chandler's first production, actually, and it was amazing. Deep house song, still it. Get, it, get, it, get, it, get it
3: Thank you.
4: Get That it, 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 it,
0: it, get it off by underground three a track that i had actually been in search of because lena had played that on fire island last summer at her sip and twirl party uh it was her closing track and then i asked her about it she said she would give it to me and she would have i never followed up and then dj will who did the first episode also knew when i talked about the scratch that track is unbelievable
1: yeah and that was a really good song at the time when i was first uh, djing every week and in 90, and so I started to go to the stores every Tuesday and Friday, you know, uh, go from store to store to store, there was Decadance, there was uh, Rebel Rebel, there was BPM, there was, of course, Vinyl Mania one and two, they had like two stores then and a few others you know, la- later on, I think eight ball around that time and Discorama, and so you scoured, I remember, you know you look for new stuff, old stuff, and twice a week usually Tuesday and Friday you, if you could, you went from place to place because you wanted to get your records,
0: you know Did you identify with one store in particular the way that me and a lot of DJs talk about Throb in sort of this really fantastic, nostalgic way? I mean, it was really Throb and Sonic Groove that I was going to more than Satellite or anything else. I mean, it wasn't so plentiful when I was record shopping. But did you have that same experience? Yeah, like now that
1: each store would focus more on what the buyer or or the owner uh, is picking up. But back then there were many more stores. So I would go to different stores for different sounds like, uh, each uh, like decadence carried more of the Italian, more energy sound. Rebel Rebel was more adventurous. You know, you could get your Aphex Twin or order your Heart House. Uh, I remember getting, uh, ordering a copy of uh, the, the that band on Heart House Records that did the 303 song Hard Floor. And, you know, or jam and spoon or that type of sound uh, because he was adventurous in that way. So every store tended to focus on other things. You know, Susan at BPM carried that style. But you could always find these gems, especially if it wasn't something that the owner cared about, but they had, then you could get it for a good price. You know, so it wasn't just about getting the newies. You would also look through the things that they would put up every week that would come through, you know, promos and other things.
0: What was that store that was, um, I only think of it, that was next to Think Pink Nails, or it's next to. It was across from that women's prison that's now a library on Sixth Avenue and Tenth Street. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, that was Heartbeat, and that
1: opened a few weeks before I opened Throb. And initially, I had the phone two one two five three three Beat, uh, and I was going to call my store Heartbeat. And I was going to have this like. St- a uh, scrubbed stainless steel black and silver heart with like wire around it. It was going to say 5-3-B. And then the store opened like right around Christmas time of 94, uh, 95. And, and I thought, okay, that's not, that's <laughs> not going to work. So then, of course, I had meat, so I had to have throb. You know, I was just
0: going with that kind of vibe, you know, and uh, worked out fine. Tell me before we go back to the meat and the post-meat DJ days about my good friend Lena, who you said you oh, yeah. met a long time ago. Yeah, Lena was,
1: I think, a really big part of his crew that I would see outside Sugar Babies, which was this club that was on 2nd Avenue, and then for a while it was on 7th Avenue, uh, which was, uh, at the time, I think it was a Dike bar. And it was upstairs and downstairs, and it was just mad crazy. And Lena and her gang of friends, I think they were like 17, they would all be outside voguing, uh, this like, you know, I'd say early 90s, yeah. And they would blow me away. I mean, if I if I had a camera then, I would have been like, taking pictures because they were they were serving it up on 7th Avenue there I
0: would be across from what's now Luke and Leroy right yeah she told me it started actually at that space on 2nd Avenue that was Global 33 and then yeah that was a restaurant that was owned by yeah and then it was moved to crazy crazy nannies when I had gone to that's it yeah crazy nannies yeah I always had some
1: kind of dour domestic name huh Henrietta, Nanny, Hudson—I mean, like we like—we don't know, huh? Ruby Tuesday or something.
0: Was Click Club lesbian or was it mixed? And did you end up sort of having a mixed following, or was it mostly gay or act upy I, I know in the oral history project she says, "Oh, was it like an act up scene or this and that?" Talk about like what your sort of downtown scene was like and what the scenes were like back then. Click
1: Club was for girls. The only guys that got in were guys at the door, people. Thought could get should be inside. A lot of guys were turned down. Uh, meet was for guys. It was basically the equivalent of the girl party on Friday. We were on Saturdays, but we we would let anybody in. Um, although sometimes you know the door person might make a weird judgment call, but uh, in my book the women were welcome. I think some of the guys uh, that I knew you know had issues with the space with that. But basically women were welcome to meet, but hardly of them came. We were pretty upfront about you know having our uh, gay visuals and the music. Um, I started the party while I was in ACT UP and we definitely had uh, a lot of ACT UP people and we, we had some benefits there for ACT UP too. And then in, in spring, we had a lot of action going on in the bathrooms because a lot of people were hooking up in the, in the club. And so I decided to open a erotic space, which was basically take some black plastic bags and make like a fake curtain in the back in the hallway. And then people could grope and get to know each other better before they go home with them. It wasn't really necessarily for sex as far as like sucking and fucking, but um, you know, it was supposed to be no lips below the hips. But it kept a lot of the line uh, it kept the line to the bathroom shorter <laughs> and it, you know, it was fun for getting to know people and we realized right away that we couldn't do it without a monitor. <laughs> so uh hot sexy friend Rafi uh took on the job and and it kind of worked good for a while, but we definitely due to the f- Lack of facilities, or because I just—we were always back in the day. We were still underground. We didn't have a cabaret license, and the meat market wasn't what it is now. So, with the with with the threat of being shut down, we we—I didn't want the back room to also take over. I wanted to be like have only like a third percentage of the influence of the whole club. So it wasn't about having a big back room. So basically, it was like this. You know, militant eroticism, which was one of the, the groups, that part of ACT UP was this group called Art Positive, and we were all artists involved in getting out the word about helping people with HIV and AIDS, and, you know, our theme was militant eroticism, so we would basically all come in a bucket of wheat paste, and put the, that's how you got in the club, and we'd put the posters up for whatever we were saying, you know, whatever we had to say, and,
0: say say that again about the wheat paste in the bucket?
1: Uh, one of the things—if you were wheat pasting an art positive, you put a little bit of yourself into your action, and you know. So basically, we'd stand around and jerk off into a bucket of wheat paste when we were going to put these posters up, uh, you know, for some of the the messages that we want to put on the street. And so, you know, it, meat wasn't part of ACT UP by any means, but you know, there was always talk about, well, what are we doing? Is it safe? And it was safe. I definitely felt that like that was important to provide a neurotic space being along the lines of this militant eroticism agenda that was in my head. But it wasn't really a place where people had sex. I mean, that that happened later, the more uh, free-for-all backrooms that went on at USA and Limelight and all that. You know, they had a, and um, that was their thing. I really didn't have any anything to do with it either way with that. But I knew what I could do and what I felt responsible with. So that's how we, you know, that's how we
0: did it there. Where did people have sex then? Where did you have sex in 1990, if you were looking for it? Home or in an alley. <laughs> <laughs> the west side. <laughs> I mean, this is in the post-Bath House era and the pre-backroom era of East Village bar as you know, as I knew it before. I mean, before Crow Bar, Wonder Bar, The Cock, anything like that, right? And you're saying there wasn't an active backroom at this bar. So I'm wondering...
1: It was definitely
0: a lot of people were making out. I, I
1: definitely found myself with my pants down around my ankles the first time, but and the light skirt turned on, and there was no wallet in my back pocket. So I knew right away. I knew right away from the get go that I need to have a monitor and make sure that you know there was some responsibility because once you give people a place and they're legally drinking, then you are somewhat responsible, even though it's ultimately their choice in something. You you know you really. You want to make sure that if someone's... Your judgment isn't that good. It can be really cloudy when you're drinking. So uh, the back room didn't become a big part of me. It was oh, there, and I think people enjoyed that aspect because the lounge had the porn and the sexy, psychedelic videos, but um, it was just part of it. I didn't,
0: I didn't want it to take over the whole vibe of the club. We're going to break there for a music interlude. This is a, this is a new... This is a really, really new track. Uh, it sort of goes along the same lines as what we were playing before, because this is Green Velvet a.k.a. Kashmir, who I think in that throb era of mine had come out with La La Land. But obviously long before that, Green Velvet has another persona uh, known as Kashmir, which is his house persona, and uh, Green Velvet is his electro persona. And the two, he's the same person producing two different types of sounds, so he's created two different names for his two different projects, which is kind of cool. This is his newest. It actually, I believe, I don't know if this is official, but it sounds like a sample from one of my favorite dance songs of all time Beat That Bitch With A Bat uh, and it's called Silly Vanilla
5: Crackets pulling capers. Let me drop some knowledge. Flowers wither into
6: vapor. Just like vanilla. Just like Ellie. Just like Ellie. Just like
5: vanilla.
6: Just like Ellie.
0: was a uh, Green Velvet and Russo track, Mili Vanilli. You Are you a Cashmere Green Velvet fan? Yes, I am. Love that green man.
1: Mr. Norman Jones, right? I don't know his name, but... He, I, hasn't he been born again a
0: couple of times now, and he just keeps creating all this beautiful stuff every other year, right? Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he does go through spurts like that. It's like every two or three years, something comes up, and it's like, wow, wow, he still has it. The, he's the living proof that religious epiphany and house music are one together but you know that i emailed when we did the vanity 6 prince the L- ladies of prince party at good times my eastern block party i emailed vanity and she wrote back to me but she you know disavows all the musical stuff she did in her career you know and she won't listen to any of it and but i was excited to get i was excited to get an email from her but her born againism has not proven so fruitful for the music industry
1: you know who's really fierce is Ingrid Chavez who wrote some songs with prince t- no, Ingrid. Ingrid's a great singer-songwriter. She has music out again now, but she did. I think she was involved during the Love Sexy period. I've been going back
0: and listening to more Sadea uh, Garrett. You know, she had worked with him, maybe. Do you know who that is? Do you want it right now? Anyway, I'm embarrassed have just sung on radio. Campbell and Drag? No, but somebody was just, like, I was asking me about... Sadea wrote some great songs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, we're going to crack into this sake that I got from Takahachi uh, and go back to post, post-meet. post So during that song, Aldo was explaining to me, and uh, a lot of this is very Insider, East village DJ music speak, but Aldo's Party Meet was actually at the venue that became Mother, famous for Johnny Dinell Jackie Sixty. And then Filter 14, years later, which I had gone to for ghetto tech parties with Disco D. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, Disco D. He was a really sweet guy. Um, During the late 90s, there was a party called Click and Drag. And that was really big. It was a cyber fetish goth party. And I DJed there for a couple of years. And it became a a breaking ground for some of the songs like Emerge from Fisher Spooner and other great music there. Um,
0: That... That all ended in, what, 2001, I think. I just always like to think when I hear Emerge, which was so, I mean, we could play it here, I'm sure. Everybody listening has heard that song a thousand times. I went to Metropolitan Bar once, and somebody said, oh, Emerge, that's like the stairway to heaven of Electroclash, which uh, I always thought was a funny analogy, but it really was a major moment in time. Casey said that uh, the Nirvana smells like teen spirit had an
1: influence on the writing of that song. How interesting, Casey Spooner of Fisher Spooner. Do you have uh, a song you want to cue up? Yeah, I want to play something from last year from Casey's uh, album. It's a remix by Tariq. And it's a song that Casey Spooner did that Jake Shears also sings on. And it's called Spanish Teenager.
0: Back, we're listening to this. This song, actually, I was saying our music tastes have always been very similar. I mean, that's the, the weird thing is, I mean, I never thought you were listening to my stuff because I wasn't making podcasts, anything like that. But, um, yeah, but that's how I felt at the record shop, and it was my good fortune. And now I'm learning a lot of other DJs who just had the good fortune to wander into Throb or make it a destination and pick up the records that you were selecting, you know, from Germany and wherever else in Europe that you were importing. Prozac, your employee. Yeah, one of the guys there. Zach was uh, Salway's roommate, so some stuff would come to
1: them. But I, I like uh, things from everywhere, you know, whether it's locally made or um, you know across the country or other places. And you never know where you're going to hear some other great sounds. And that's why you know, go to a party, take some time off from DJing is really always a good time to check your stuff and to have a good time. And I didn't have any problem taking time off from DJing so that I could do that. Now I've been doing iPod mixes, uh, people have me buy an iPod and fill it up for them with, you know, a gazillion gigs of music, and I love doing that, because they'll say, you know, give me some of this or that, and I put together a lot of different styles, and then in that way I learn too, because I, I start looking for a sti- through a style of music like you do, I notice that you, on your website you, like, feature different styles and songs that you do, and, you know just all those great sound frequencies, you get caught up in them, and it's beautiful
0: I've always, no, I am very much of the same mindset. I always find it so limiting to just think I'm going to do house. I'm going to do hip hop. I'm going to do deep house. I'm going to do tech house. There's so many things I listen to, which was exactly what uh, reminded me. I accidentally watched the wrong film yesterday, two days ago. I meant to watch Slacker, Richard Linklater's film of 1991. You know what I'm talking about? But instead, I downloaded Slacker's this really lame 2002 college film about cheating and the soundtrack for the opening song had this in it and I was really taken with it. So, uh, I found it and downloaded it. This is my contribution. It is totally not dance music, but that's okay. Cause we have a place for that here on twerking radio.
1: getting this record at a swap
0: meet in California. <laughs> it's yes, it's Pete Townsend, The Who. Yeah, Bob O'Reilly, London Philharmonic version. No, that was who was that? Space Condom with Hura. <laughs> and tell me, tell me that track that you were saying it we're sorry, we were talking during that. We've been talking a lot during all the tracks and you're only gonna get the second half of the story when we get back on air. But uh you said that's kinda like your go to track for chilling out and relaxing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I like this track when you know you need a, a good feel with music and it just puts us on and everything's alright, you know.
0: What should we talk about now? Post-click and drag. So post-click and drag, you had Throb going, and we've talked about that record store a lot, yeah. right?
1: Oh uh, Yeah, we were talking about, you know, around 2000, 2001, there was a the whole electro-punk, electro-crash moment.
0: And, uh, and so then, in my life, uh, there was Throb, and then there wasn't Throb, and then there was digital music, and then there was Aldo on Thursdays at Nowhere Bar with these really crazy cross-dressers and it was totally like mark this on your calendar, it was one of those parties you would always forget about because at that point I, I don't think you were like flyering and Facebook wasn't around and it wasn't like you were advertising it very much, but you would sort of wander into this newish bar nowhere which is the cousin bar of Phoenix and Metropolitan, two other kind of divey hangout gay bars in the East Village and then Aldo would be there and was sort of like, oh my god, I know you from that record shop you're like, yes, girl, and I just put down masking tape. I did it one night, and they just start doing runway on the floor. And these aren't drag queens for all the listeners who haven't been. These are, maybe you could describe It's a It's a group, right? Like a Yahoo group of women? Yeah, they have groups, too. It's a lot of transsexuals,
1: and they're great people. And they're not necessarily like performance artist types, although people perform and dance and enjoy their time. Uh, people with families and kids are not, but of all different eras and persuasions and there's a whole community and they made thursday nights there they're hang out for a while and i came in the owner asked me to you know fill in and it just became like this regular crazy scene and so i'd put down what i called the lines and it's two white lines of of 2 inch
0: duct tape well, what made you think to do that in the first place
1: well the way that people come into this low ceiling dive and i was like okay the space you know every every architecture has this kind of a psychic and kind of energy in it and I would stand there playing music and I'd see like the the path and I thought well let's just put some sort of order in this you know place where people come in and then they start doing runway or dancing and I put the lines down we couldn't call the party lines for obvious reasons but but uh it just became like a fun thing and it didn't matter whether it was busy or not people had a good time and and you weren't restricted to that, but yeah, we ended up having a Miss Nowhere contest for a couple of years, and having a spring uh, legs. Uh, I think there was one one season it was shoes. The girls would all come in these wild shoes, and then basically, the the lines were there all the time. I mean, you could just enjoy it, or you didn't have to be a tranny to enjoy it. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was no, it was a great it was a great group, and it was a. It was really fun. It was so low key though. I mean, I don't think there was any advertising or promoting. Well,
1: there there was a little advertising and we ended up calling the party sound bites. We couldn't do project nowhere, right? But um <laughs> or the lines, but so so yeah, we we ended up uh, calling it sound bites because, you know, one of the bartenders says like oh, it's all about the music here. But really it was it was the mix of this place that's just in its own place, uh, it's outside of the the, you know, well-known circuit of performance artist drag queen types it was more like the true blue uh trannies transsexuals and and all types of phases of that i mean there's a lot of people that are pre-op post-op and everything else and um you know really became a fun type thing and it's and it, it moves on like anything it just kind of keeps shifting and changing um i think i did about three years there
0: and then you started uh working for satellite.com right i mean had you ever gotten out of the Record selling business, be it vinyl records or digital records. I stayed pretty close with the music. I've done a lot of th-
1: sound design and uh, music for you know other performers uh, for performance work. I've always, yeah, I've always enjoyed you know dealing dealing with the music and I'm doing stuff online on Discogs.com, uh, selling a lot of the records that I have in my collection and from the shop, and uh, then uh guys from satelliterecords.com have only they only have an online shop now. What was the store? So um they asked me to be one of the curators, which is basically, you know, listening to a bunch of new tracks that are going to be coming out and picking the ones I think stand out.
0: So I'm going to get really geeky record hoarding on you for a minute. Uh Discogs for people who don't know is a site that anybody who wants to find a record uh, that might be sold or have existed and is for sale. Uh, this is the sake talking. Uh it's a site for it's a site for record collectors who still wanna own vinyl or find a song that's really hard to find. Uh and it's really crazy community that's on there. What is the most expensive or craziest discog story you have? I could tell you oh is it my turn to play a song I know what I'm gonna play because I was in hot pursuit of before Miss Honey had made a big renaissance, that YouTube video existed, but the vinyl was quite hard to come by. And I went through all the people who listed that they owned Miss Honey, you know, by Miss Honey on Vine, yeah, Rated, Rated X record, Project X. Or Project X. I looked, I listened to their whole everything that I could find that they had, had online on YouTube. Uh, I'm so fortunate to live in an era when you could listen, you find, find, find these YB things. Plan. Yeah, so uh, I found 10 people who had owned it. I found one guy who communicated with me and was willing to burn the vinyl to MP3 and share it with me. Uh, and I'm going to play that next, but while I cue that up, Aldo, do you have any crazy record-selling stories that commanded thousands of dollars for an obscure Erasure 12-inch?
1: <laughs> well, there, there's a couple of records that I made a few hundred dollars. <laughs> I'd say Underground Resistance. <laughs> spiral tribe the more the more limited extreme uh, you know releases that people can't get anywhere else i think really draw um
0: well there's yeah i'd really anything you're surprised by something that i mean only because there's certain auctions i track on ebay and discogs you know you could subscribe to see when people will post these things weird things that i'm not even going to mention because i'm watching them right now on ebay but uh things that get really obsessive over, and I'm sure other people do also. Nothing comes to mind. Okay, we're going to play Miss Honey. Here it goes. Okay, that was my Discogs contribution. I am a weird, uh, you know, we're sitting here in my apartment slash radio studio, um, and I still have tons of vinyl sitting around that I'm not really listening to, but I have a really hard time getting rid of. I think you cataloged uh, Gant Johnson's vinyl collection also recently. You got rid of it? Yeah, he's he's been
1: uh, recording, digitalizing, his records and then crate by crate every few months brings them over and i put them up on discogs for him and we let other people enjoy it See, that's a beautiful thing uh for me now sharing all the music that i've enjoyed instead of keeping it up on the shelves and you know lugging it around i've something switched in my head and i now i enjoy dispersing it out all over the world
0: so did you and we were talking during that song we were talking uh we were talking about being protective of music i mean was there a point in time in a different era when music wasn't so easily accessible when you felt secretive about certain tracks and certain records and do you you still feel that way because i we were talking about a few people that we still know just just as the person who very graciously shared that miss honey song not only with me but in turn me and michael magnan and everybody else i sent it to with the acapella you know Sharing it with one person could go a really long way. Posting it on a website could go a really long way. And I'm very grateful for that. But I I know that there is still a bit of secrecy that some people don't want to. I still won't share certain tracks. But, uh, you know, yeah. I'm not going to tell you what tracks those are. Music is, is delivered
1: to us differently now, right? So instead of running to the shops every week or getting things in the mail, you it comes to you differently, so to speak. Or you, you hear it and you go online for the most part. And in that sense, it's changed. The secret weapon, you know, cliche that we used before has also changed because people... I tried doing that a few years ago. I had a really uh, great Michael Mayer track. I think it was called Two of Us, or or maybe it was Mr. Craft. One of those. It was like three years ago. And um, my friend Michael Flack was like, what is this? What is this? And I couldn't recall what it was, or I wasn't telling, or I was, you know, in the moment, in libation. And it, yeah. Anyway, um, he had Shazam or one of those other products that you put your phone up to the speaker, and he told me back what I was playing within ten seconds. <laughs> that that was it, <laughs> and so that's been going on for a while now.
3: Yeah,
0: there are no secrets. I just listened to a Todd Terje, however you say it, mix, and uh, people kept writing on the mix on SoundCloud. What song is this? What song is this? This is two days ago, and I just got out Shazam put it up it worked amazingly i mean it was amazing that these obscure remixes i mean they're not super obscure if they were released you could identify in 10 seconds and download it in 10 more seconds just different era
1: so, so yeah so it becomes a new thing i mean it's great because it's really the music you like a song a track or a mix it's up to you and it's a different kind of search you know i love it that's part of the enjoyment when you when you hear something that really tweaks your head you Look for it in whatever way you can find it. You hear a bit somewhere, or you know, a piece. And even though I get that too. People send me emails and to listen to stuff, and sometimes that works. But mostly, you know, I, I need some some tips, location, you know, year, artist. And I do a lot of that type of work for people, like music research. But I do, and en- I do enjoy the fact that you know, I hear about something, and then I want to find more about that artist. And as uh, a pleasure in my own house, I can just swim around the internet and. I just dis- I've discovered like the different artists like The Magician. Oh.
0: So good Oh my god, did you hear the latest EP? Not tan, but his uh, mixes. No, there's a there's another EP he just came out with. Oh, good, right? oh my god. Yeah. And that I
1: discovered because I was on somebody else's SoundCloud and next thing you know, I I think it was Care or somebody like that. I was on her page. And I just float around and then I discover these beautiful mixes or songs and I encourage everyone to do that when you have some time or make the time because
0: so the question is we could play one of your songs or i could play that magician song we might fade into one of your songs because i really want to play it for you the question is you have all this vinyl at your apartment and you're very great at digitizing vinyl which is what you do for money and for other people do you still feel an emotional attachment to the records the physical vinyl records even after you digitize it that you still want to hold on to it for the cover art or for the sentimental reasons I
1: love the idea the packaging whether it's public image you know the the film can with the three records or various other covers uh I mean it was they're conveying something through the artwork the lyrics the way it's presented is is it's still a part of it for artists that uh, you know do that realm even when you create a, a a track or you put a track on SoundCloud you're still going to pick an image to convey that that idea it is different now so I lo- I love the 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 being able to hold it, the package while you're listening to the album. Um, I also love sharing the music. You know, I, I decided to go ahead and share a lot of it or most of it, and not hold on to it. And um, you know, provides me to get even more music <laughs> with with income from that. And it's really not just about the income. It's mostly about the fact that I've enjoyed it. I want other people to enjoy it too. They get. I mean, there's nothing like the, the pizzazz or the kick you get when you get something new musically in the mail or through your internet or wherever you know and you open it and it's yours in your head it's yours and that's it's a beautiful thing it, it, you know it does not only only belong to you but i think you meaning that it's
0: part of your life that's
1: how i mean that, that it's yours it doesn't mean you know it's
3: yeah
0: no i know exactly what you mean i'm exactly the same way whether it comes to wikipedia in looking for like production and then going on i mean please i could spend days just looking through uh marauder's catalog and finding all the art i mean you know anything like that anyone who's connected but anyway we're gonna stop babbling i'm gonna play this track and aldo is either gonna play a follow-up track or talk back to me about this track this is by uh peter and the magician the magician was one half of aeroplane he's a new disco artist out of europe and uh he's really really amazing and this is a slower one it's kind of a tallow actually balancing that uh first hour of talking <laughs> with uh with more music we just played the magician which uh aldo and i bonded over and that was a remix of sandcastle disco by machine drum by solange which i never heard it was cute though
1: yeah yeah i liked hearing all the new york artists coming out like machine drum and lauren flax and all them and it really is exciting what's going on in the boroughs Whoa.
0: You want to hear a rumor that I heard? Of course. I asked. I asked. <laughs> I asked uh, somebody how Johnny Dynell got Ten Snake to remix Jam Hot. You know that like went very big. Somebody said that they had like been somehow connected in the past, like maybe through a tryst or something. That's how they knew each other. I was I was shocked. You know, Ten Snake is doing a lot of that new disco is it your 10 snake? Or? I think it was Johnny Dunnell's 10 snake that got the 10 snake remix charted on Beatport and elsewhere it was really big.
1: I love that remix. I did hear it right away and dig, dig it.
0: Yeah. They're both town. We were talking about Johnny very much during the songs. We love Johnny. Uh and Johnny actually came about the Space at Mother via Aldo. Julie. Yeah, Julie uh had the
1: space that uh, started the Click Club and I started meet right then and then she was friends with johnny chichi and they came and started jackie 60 and then it just led to this kind of interactive thing for what a decade basically where we were doing parties and i ended up doing click and drag with them in the late 90s where we were bringing out all the cyber fetish goth electro i mean i hadn't even seen the matrix
0: and we were playing that out there in real life <laughs> we're gonna stop talking club life and we're gonna talk about aldo's great swim from cuba to the united states Started off as a backstroke butterfly. (laughs) (laughs) So you're Cuban. Tell me, tell me, I mean, this is a bit reversed since we've already covered a lot of ground in the hour or two that we've been talking. Tell me how you came from uh, the shores of Cuba to the shores of New York City. Well,
1: uncut and belabored, I uh, swam all the way via Spain and Ellis Island. I still have my green card. And ended up in California where I got a great
0: opportunity to start... uh, How old were you when you came to California?
1: Oh, well, we were in Miami for a year. As All Cubans have to go through Miami. It's the rite of passage. (laughs) And then uh, I grew up in California, basically. That's why I had the California fag accent. But most people who
0: grew up in California like our good New York City, East Village, Nightlife friend. uh, What's his name? The one who did all the parties at the cock? And now lives in L.A. No, he's Mexican. Oh,
1: oh, he's in those great movies, Mario, Mario. Sanchez. <laughs> what movies is he in? Oh, you didn't see that great movie? Oh, you gotta watch it. It's on. It's came out like three years ago.
0: Mario Diaz actually. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know he was Cuban. He's not. I don't know what he is. But I was gonna say, like, like most California people, I've found they spend their time in New York, be it. Two years, five years, ten years, and they usually end up going back to California or, or or a place that's a bit more sunny and climatic and a little more laid back. It all comes down to the refugee center in the sixties. You get a choice
1: when you get to the shores of good old USA. It's good for Fourth of July, so everybody really knows how it comes down on independence. Like my sister says, look at the word independence. So, you know have your out dependence here but uh, what happens is the refugee centers tells you do you want chicago or la you know so being that my father knew from his family that california had nice little oranges and sunny we ended up in the naval orange capital of the world corona and that was close enough to la so by the time i was 14 i was hitchhiking to see you know elton john and david bowie and all that sort of stuff and uh, from that area from inland empire i ended up in long beach and was in the, involved a lot in the music scene there in the early 80s, and I had at that art center where all kinds of people performed. And uh, I also did a, some time in San Francisco where I worked at Dora. The first time I worked at a club, I was like 18, late 70s, and I worked at a club called Disco 2000 on Union Street back in 1977. And you'd you know, I'd, I'd go out after hours or at clubs like Bones and I-Beam, which is still there, actually. And I remember seeing people like Sylvester and... Jane Oliver and place people like that after hours. People still held roses in their mouths when they danced close to you in the, back in those days, you know. But you know, there was there was Devo at one side of town and then there was the whole like Sylvester thing going on. And so that took me from California
0: Which side did you gravitate toward, Devo or Sylvester? That's like a that's like a Sophie's choice over here in my apartment. Well, that's why we're DJs
1: because we can straddle both sides of the <laughs> musical spectrum.
0: But at that time, which one were you more akin to? I mean, was it more new wavy, dancey, or were you? I mean, there's no turning your back on Sylvester, but oh, it,
1: was, it was never separated. I just knew that I had to go to two different places to see them. But I, I definitely always loved Sylvester and Devo. Yeah, they were under my skin right away. That whole, you know, you know, I'll tell you. By the time I had an apartment on Temple Avenue in Long Beach in the early eighties, I had people staying at my house all the time, friends, Carrie Crom. And I remember Ron Ron Athey and Roz from Christian Death and all that. And we would always be listening to Prince. So there's there's that bit, you know, where all, all those golf people were listening to Prince at home, and that's what we would do. And Prince was working at a roller skating rink then in Hollywood Boulevard with his like purple cape and his tiger underwear. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, he was about eighteen by the time he had his first record contract, and he he did quite a few Saturday nights there in Hollywood. So you know,
0: what's your favorite Prince song? Oh, head! Oh. Uh, <laughs> <Ed. laughs> I love that response.
1: Ed, right? uh, oh, just yeah, that's a whole other show. All of them. <laughs> did you see him
0: when he just performed recently? No, but my friends did. <laughs> yeah, I, Same thing with me. Sadly, I couldn't afford a two hundred dollar ticket. I, I saw him first time in
1: 82 at the time in 6 and it was amazing. And then I saw him here in New York in, uh, at the Love Sexy Tour, that was fantastic at Madison Square Garden. But before that we would see him at this roller Skating Rink in Hollywood and that was amazing. That's when he was performing the first
0: couple albums. Yeah. Um, so how did you go from the shores of Long Beach to the shores of New York City? And do you ever miss Long Beach? Oh, I'd love to
1: go back there. I know it's changed. that once, no doubt, came into the scene and charged <laughs> up the town.
0: <laughs> Is that where they're from, Long Beach? Apparently, yeah. Uh,
1: I was there in the late 70s, early 80s and I uh, was in the whole scene and you a know, uh, staff member at Cal State Long Beach so I was doing things like you know, showing premieres of Western decline of civilization and throwing parties at the Mercury Arts Center with everybody from Lydia Lunch to monitor all the L.A. type. Well, no, actually, I was throwing events. I wasn't having all these... I was having a lot of artists perform at this art center that I had in Long Beach. And from there, I took a cruise around Mexico and ended up in New York in early 85 and ended up at Area. And a friend gave me a pass to come in, and I loved it, and I liked the spice. So I came back in July of 85 and never went back.
0: Okay, so we are nearing the end of our show we've had a couple of sakis and champagnes and wines but um we're not sure where we left off but we are sort of in a tech house moment right now and there's this track uh by omar s who i don't know that much about i think he's getting bigger i'm guessing he's german but i really have no idea anyway it's called uh here's your trance now dance it's a really long one we might fit it out in the middle but uh might ask I'll do a up with something equally as amazing. So here we go. That we go out to find the fireworks on fourth of July. What are you doing for Fourth of July besides this radio show? Oh yeah, fireworks, fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, my forks. Are you gonna are you looking for any more um DJ residencies or anything? I mean I think I think you said uh oh, man, to get a hair or dye job and get
1: back on track. I mean, I, I like being out there. I just need to take a little healthy break.
0: Well, it was long enough. We're waiting for you to jump back in the game i
1: had to bury some friends and
0: (laughs) you know something we didn't talk about i was gonna say on that uh oral history and we could obviously talk about this for hours is that it it just living through so much it just seems like you know so many people who have passed on so many amazing creative people music people uh which must have been really crazy to go through do you still think about that day to day or no yeah sure they inspire me for the rest of my life you know the the
1: the times and the walks and the Beautiful moments with people—they don't leave you. They come come at to you different ways. You know, sometimes I always think, like, what would he do? That question. And sometimes it's with somebody that is gone. You know, some of the these really creative, bright—they went out like matches. You know, at really young ages. And 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 I, you know, and I have a lot of friends that are are alive and they have HIV and they're fine. But you know, we miss them so much, and they are, they are those those words and those times and their spirit it doesn't leave it's like your heart you know you take somebody else's heart part of them is with you
0: did you watch that fran lebowitz documentary by martin scorsese i saw that yeah when she talk when she talks about how all the people that passed away and how they were all like the tier one people and if they came back and saw all the i would agree that a lot
1: of it but then they're the people that are living life you know life lovers and they they got out there and you know, it was a nasty germ with nobody helping out, and basically you're on your own, having to you know feed your friends with a tray outside their door. And that was a, w- a while ago, but you know, I think that there's there is that you you learn that there is the the heart and the soul. They they kind of stay out there in 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 our world. So I'm inspired by friends that aren't around anymore.
0: What are you gonna play for us as your farewell twerking radio track?
1: Um, it's a track by Oliver Tan, and it's kind of Spanish-feeling, although he's in Berlin, and it's called Hasta El Fin, Until the End.
0: And where can we find you and everything you're doing, uh, which is so unbelievably on par with my musical taste and what I'm doing? So tell tell me where we can find it.
1: You can find me in Tompkins Park, across my house, or you can find me online on one of the, the Facebook-type things, sure. Yeah. And your... Uh, Other moniker is Load.
0: My anagram is Load Resin Hand, but you can find my artist page under Aldo Hernandez. Aldo Hernandez, thank you for being a guest. Okay, so here we go. This is Oliver Tone. Asta Elfine. Till next time. (laughs)
7: Estuvimos aquí. Aquí nos quedamos, estamos aquí, hasta el fin, estuvimos aquí, aquí nos quedamos, estamos aquí,